it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. But that beginning started some months ago. According to a very close source of mine who works at the Rabina Town Centre, this year the festive decorations started appearing in late October, but we're up as early as August in Big W. There you can buy all of your Christmas requirements, lights, trees, decorations, wrapping paper and bonbons. By October, Christmas carols started playing in store, music for you to subconsciously shop to. Play through tinny speakers at annoying sound levels. Although they aren't really carols, are they? If you want to sing some real carols, come along and join us tonight from 5pm. See what I did No, shopping centres play Christmas songs. Here's a few of my favourite sources. Here's a few of my sources' favourites so far. All I want for Christmas is you. Jingle Bell Rock, rocking around the Christmas tree. Last Christmas, happy Christmas when the war is over, and Feliz Navidad. His absolute favourite song so far is Christmas Don't Be Late by Alvin and the Chipmunks. <laughs> Actually, if you know the song this year for Christmas, I'm thinking of one job, a hula hoop. Just think about it for a moment, won't you? The same songs play every day at the same time of day, the same festive songs played on endless repeat by Michael Bublé and Mariah Carey, the same songs being played at least four times during a 10 hour shift, played to drown out the noise of crying children, the indiscernible chatter of customers, interrupted by in-store announcements and the haunting sirens of security and fire alarms. We only play these songs once a year, but we play them enough to last for another 12 months. And let's be honest, it's not music that you really want to play in July, is it? It's so bland and, well, inoffensive. Celebrating Christmas in a secular consumer culture means playing songs that don't offend any sensitivities. I mean, unless you want to start deconstructing the possible meaning behind six white boomers. <laughs> but Christmas has always been about music. What's a celebration without a soundtrack? And while Christmas tradition tells us that it all started with a little drummer boy in Bethlehem, the Bible tells us it started well before that, around the time of Mary's pregnancy. We're in our series, our Christmas series on Luke's Gospel, a series called Don't Believe the Hype. And Luke writes his account of the life of Jesus, his Gospel account, so that we might have certainty in Luke chapter 1 verse 4. It's a carefully, orderly, well-examined account so that you may have certainty concerning these things. What things might? Well, the things about Jesus. Luke writes so that we don't have to guess about him. Now, I don't want to sound as repetitive as a Christmas song, but we've already seen in Luke chapter 1 that those who should don't and those who shouldn't do. After 400 years of silence from God because of Israel's repetitive unbelief, God speaks through the angel Gabriel, and his first words are to a priest named Zechariah. Zechariah is a righteous and blameless man who should believe God's message to him, but doesn't. And now God's silence becomes Zechariah's, remaining tightly until Gabriel's message is fulfilled amongst them. Gabriel, the angel, speaks again, and this time it's to Mary, remember? An unmarried virgin from Nazareth. Mary's engaged to some bloke from the house of David. Literally, she is a no one from nowhere. Remember, those who should don't, those who shouldn't do. 
And when the angel Gabriel speaks to Mary, Mary believes that God can do the impossible. The virgin will have a baby named Jesus because God is now fulfilling his promises to David. And so after her encounter with Gabriel, Mary now goes and visits her cousin Elizabeth. Zachariah, who's still stunned into silence, lives with his pregnant and elderly wife, Elizabeth. Now, to be fair, staying quiet during your wife's pregnancy could have been considered a strategic life move. But what was initially unbelievable for Zachariah is now a reality that is six months into making. So when Mary comes to visit them, it's not just Elizabeth who's excited to see her. I want you to see it for yourself. Chapter 1, verse 39. In those days Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country, to a town in Judah. And when she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Mary turns up at Elizabeth's place, and Elizabeth's baby starts doing backflips. Her child is overjoyed at the sound of Mary's voice. You see, John's already pointing out attention to Jesus. And neither John nor Jesus have even been born yet. Even Elizabeth begins shouting for joy. She starts turning the spotlight directly onto Mary. Having been barren herself all these years, finally now Elizabeth is miraculously pregnant. But Elizabeth moves beyond her own joy and starts calling Mary the most blessed woman of all. Even if Zacharias remained quiet, Elizabeth isn't staying silent for anyone. Still within her second trimester, Elizabeth says that it's Mary's child who is blessed. Elizabeth is responding to Mary's visit like Zachariah should have responded to Gabriel's visit to him. But he didn't. Remember, those who should, don't. Zachariah is a priest of Israel. He's had a personal encounter with an angel from heaven. Elizabeth wasn't even with Mary when Gabriel appeared to him. And it's not like Zachariah's told her anything about it. But Elizabeth knows exactly what's happening. She says, Blessed are you among women, Mary. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. Blessed are you for believing God's promises. On Tuesday night this week, I was involved in a deeply religious experience. Along with all of my members of my family, we were at the Food Fighter Sponsor in Brisbane. Now, I've seen these guys live three times, and I think Dave Grohl is possibly the coolest man on the planet. We attended with around 50,000 other of our closest friends, singing along and declaring our appreciation for the band. On Wednesday morning when I woke up, it was with a raspy voice, because for three hours the night before, I'd sung along to just about every song. Now, apart from church on Sundays each week, that's really the only other time that you'll find me singing. Which is why I don't like musicals. I cannot stand them. Now, I'm sorry if I lost a few friends all of a sudden, but musicals are just unrealistic. Who spontaneously bursts into song about raindrops and roses, whiskers on kittens, or about how hard life is inside an orphanage? It's unrealistic. But Mary, having been visited by an angel, now visiting her pregnant cousin Elizabeth, begins to realise how unrealistic what's really happening to her now is. Which is why Mary bursts into song. She sings about what God's doing in Israel. And I don't want you to picture friends an unemployed nun, 
Bait, an unemployed babysitting nun doing long frock twirls in the Swiss Alps here. That's not what's going on. And some Christian traditions make the mistake of thinking that this is all about Mary. Blessed is she among women. Blessed is the fruit of her womb. All generations will call her blessed. But I want you to look very carefully that Mary's song isn't about Mary. And what Mary sings about is more than she could possibly know. While the spotlight is on her, is on her, what's happening to her, Mary's focus remains on what God's now doing amongst his people. Remember those who shouldn't do. And I'm not talking about singing her here. Here are song lyrics, verse 46. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Mary's song is a little bit up and down. It's a song about a reversal of fortunes. You see, she sings about the proud being brought low, while the humble are now being exalted. While the rich go away empty, the hungry are now being filled. Mary sings, but her heartfelt song of praise captures the very heart of the child that now resides within her. It's what theologians call a reversal of fortune. Or to put it another way, those who should don't, those who shouldn't do. Elizabeth's child is doing backflips, but Mary's child comes turning the tables. Mary exalts the Lord. She lifts high the God who has lifted her up, raised her up from her lonely position of humility. Mary is a true servant of the Lord. And her response is the opposite of Zachariah's, for she knows that all of this is God's doing, and she believes. Notice all the he's are not me's and not she's in Mary's soul. Mary's preferred pronouns are he and is. Look there, verse 49. He has done great things for me, verse 50. His mercy is for those who fear him, verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud of heart, verse 52. He has brought down the mighty and exalted the humble, verse 53. He has filled the hungry. He has set the rich away empty, verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel, verse 55. He has spoken to Abraham and his children. Mary's song is now broader than her pregnancy and filled with as much expectation as she is. Promises spoke to Abraham and his descendants, help for his servant Israel. I mean, it's hard to understand how Mary gets all the credit. Why hail Mary when she exalts the Lord? Why hail Mary when the grace that she's full of is God's grace to her and God's grace to all of us? Even Mary says that she's the Lord's servant. She's not to be worshipped or deified in any way. Mary even says this to Gabriel, chapter 1, verse 38. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Usually over Christmas time, the relatives come and stay. Now the general rule of thumb is the same for prawns. After three days, they tend to go off. So if seven days is a long time to have house guests at your place, three months must have felt like, well, 13 weeks and four days. But when Mary finally goes home, 
It's time now for Elizabeth to have her baby. And as expected, she gives birth to a son. And when all the neighbours hear of the good news, they come over and rejoice with Elizabeth because God's been merciful to her. In keeping with Jewish customs and traditions, in the it's the time of circumcision to it's the time to circumcise their baby boy. And male circumcision wasn't just a help for health reasons. It was a sign of God's covenant promises to Abraham. You see, circumcision marked out Israel from the nations. It was a sign of belonging to the people of God. Although, I've got to say, when I went to the temple in Jerusalem, honestly, nobody was there. <laughs> circumcision is also a time for revelation. It's the day that the child is given a name. See it with me, won't you? Verse 59. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would call him, would have called him Zachariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. I'm not sure how Elizabeth knew that her child was to be named John, because that's what Gabriel said to Zachariah. Gabriel told this to Zechariah when he was in the temple. It's not like Zechariah said all that much. I mean, he hasn't said anything for nine months. All cultural and social expectations are that the child will be named after his father, Zechariah. And after all, Zechariah isn't really protesting. But Elizabeth insists that his name is to be John. And so when it's pointed out to Elizabeth by everybody else, but no one else in her family is named John, Everyone starts pointing at Zachariah, looking for him to provide some answers, which is weird, because Zachariah's not deaf. I don't know what I need to point to him. It's just that he can't talk. After what seems like a confusing game of charades and something somewhat similar to the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, Zachariah has left to clear things up for everyone. See it there, like in verse 63. He asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. They all wondered about the name John, but now they're all about to be amazed. After writing on the tablet, his name is John Zechariah, finally begins to speak. For the entire duration of Elizabeth's pregnancy, his mouth was closed and his tongue tied. Just as God has been silent till now, so Zechariah has been held silent. The man who's been silent for so long suddenly becomes the talk of the whole town. Everyone is seized with fear. Can you see that? Hearts filled by what's happened. News about it spreads everywhere. It is a bit like Acts 2, isn't it? Having waited in anticipation of his name, now we wait for expectation of what this child will do. But Zachariah is ready to shout it from the rooftops. He knows exactly what John will do. Gabriel told him. Like Elizabeth before him, Zechariah is filled with the Spirit. And after such a long period of silence, Zechariah's first words are words of praise. Zechariah is so filled by the Spirit of God that he now bursts into song. And it's a song of blessing, a song of remembrance, a song about God's presence. As Zechariah considers John's future mission, he recalls God's past faithfulness to the people of Israel. That God has now stepped into time and that God has come to redeem his people. Won't you see it with me? Verse 68. 
Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. God made promises to King David that a son of David would always rule over Israel, that a son of David would be the son of God. Zechariah sings because God's promises to David are now being fulfilled in his time. And at the birth of his son John, well, it's just the very beginning of all of these things beginning to happen. But God hasn't just said this to David. Look there, verse 17. He spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. God's promises made to David, Israel's king, are the promises spoken by Israel's prophets, covenant promises made with Israel's fathers. God made these promises all the way back to Abraham. Genesis 12 verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What is it that God promised his people, the descendants of Abraham? Redemption. <coughs> Salvation rest. God has now come to his people in order to save them from their enemies. Just as he promised David, <coughs> just as he promised Abraham, God now comes to visit and to return. And here's why, verse 73, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him in all our days. You see that? So that we might serve God without fear. Because now we can serve him in his faith. Zachariah served God in fear. Nine months ago, Zachariah lived in fear of God. If he walked into the temple ritually unclean, Zachariah could have died. In the Old Testament, fear is the emotion that dominated the very service of God. Whenever God spoke to anyone, whenever God did something among his people, whenever an angel turned up with a message, the people of Israel were afraid. God's people were fearful. Even after nine months of staying silent, Zechariah spoke, and the neighbours are now afraid. But we no longer need to live in fear of God, friends, because God has shown his favour to his people. God has shown mercy to Israel. He's kept his promises to his people. Zachariah sings a new song, a song about serving God in love, faithfulness and joy. A man who was silenced because of his own unfaithfulness now sings a new song about the faithfulness of God to him about God's faithfulness to his promises. And just for a very brief moment, we're wondering how this song of Zechariah actually fits at all 
with the occasion that's taken place? How does baby John's birth precede all this promised expectation? Well, Zechariah sings over his song, Son of John, in verse 76, what we see here. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This son of John, this son, John, is a prophet. His job is to make people God's people, ready for God's coming. John comes before the Lord comes, preparing Israel for the salvation that is still to come. God redeeming his people, God visiting his people, saving them from their enemies, delivering them from their sins. Just like his mother Elizabeth did with Mary, John's role is to shine the spotlight onto Jesus giving light to those who dwell in darkness and to all of us who live under the shadow of death. Even the song, John's birth, a song sung by a once silent skeptic named Zechariah, is now a song that points us to Jesus. Friends, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. But this isn't the same old story I endless repeat year after year. Christmas is really about a new song. And a song that God invites us to sing because of his faith towards us. A song that no, that no longer lives in fear, but a song that knows of his salvation and of his forgiveness and of his mercy and kindness. A song that's now bursting with praise Pregnant with hope and expectation, God has come to visit us. God keeping his promises to us. That is the soundtrack of Christmas. A life-changing song that we can sing forever and ever, and not just once a year. Redemption, salvation, rest are on offer to us in the songs of Zechariah and Mary. This Christmas, friends, don't believe the heart. Don't keep singing the same old songs, songs that mean nothing, songs that say nothing, songs that don't upset anyone, songs that annoyingly play in the background that distract us from the sounds of life itself. We don't need to live in fear of God. You don't need to be afraid. He has come in favour of us. And you don't need to be afraid of your enemies. You don't need to fear them. Because God has come to deliver us from them all. Will you pray with me? Our Father, there's something that feels very familiar about this time of year. It's like we just did it. And here we are now doing it again. But we do it again because of the incredible thing that you've done for us in your son. 
And you would call us to no longer live in fear, but to live in joy and in your forgiveness because of your faithfulness. So would you help us to see a new side? Not the same old one, not one that's meaningless and worthless. But to sing a new song by our life, lived for you, Lord Jesus. Because you have come to us. So as we sit here this morning, we want to thank you that you've come to redeem us, that you've come to visit us, that we're not left alone, that we're not abandoned as orphans, that you've made us your children, given us your spirit, called us yours. And so we pray that this Christmas we will live a new song. Sing a new song. No longer in fear.